0: You're listening to The Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Last week of this sermon series, six weeks you have endured You are holy and blessed. Thank you for doing so. We've been doing a sermon series called Follow Your Hunger. It's really about fasting and abstaining from things this season to prepare ourselves again for the good news of Jesus. So we've been talking about stories of hunger and teachings about hunger from scripture, about fasting and abstaining from all kinds of things, from food to news to TV to phones to whatever it is in our life that we need to kind of reimagine and reorient so that it serves us rather than we serve it as always if you have any questions or comments insights directives please send them this is the phone number it's on the bottom of each screen i got my app open if you want to send questions or comments try to make this as much of a dialogue as possible rather than you listening to me for a long period of time we have a lot of slides we're going to go fast you hear that slide team (laughs) we're going fast thank you but really, the, the idea behind this sermon series is that Lent is a reflection and preparation of heading into the Easter season, that we, uh, we want to emulate King Jesus, who went into the wilderness for 40 days before he started his ministry, tempted by Satan, not eating. And then uh, his early followers took that and said, let's take 40 days leading up to our high holy day, our most important season, and prepare ourselves again, reorient our life, and so we did six seasons during this time to look at hunger and the lessons that we can learn. Today, we're going to not look at our own hunger. We're going to look at Jesus' hunger. Let's talk about Jesus' hunger. There's a few times in Scripture where Jesus is hungry. One, during that 40 days, he was very hungry. I love that. 40 days, no food. And they're like, just so you know, he was also hungry. John chapter 4, he's at the well with the Samaritan woman, hungry and thirsty. Today, Palm Sunday, we have a story that happens right after Jesus' marches into the city on his donkeys. By the way, I always bring this up every year. In Matthew, it says that he got a donkey and a of a baby donkey, and he sat on them, which is awesome. He's riding both of them. I like to imagine him standing one foot on each saddle, but um, he rides on them, And he rides on them into the city. And and I don't have time to go into the whole thing. We've done this in years past about how radical this is. That usually Caesar rides it on the white horse of triumph and war and violence. And it's usually right before him is this long parade of all the spoils of war from the people that they conquered. And yet Jesus rides in a donkey mocking the empire's power, its, its might, its war horses. He does not come in on this white steed of victory, but a lowly and humble donkey. And he doesn't come in with the spoils of war, but the people that he's redeemed from Satan's grasp, who sing, glory, Hosanna, glory to the highest heavens. It's this radical scene of overturning what it means to be strong and powerful. This is where the revolution begins. And then right after that, we go into Matthew 11. Uh, Mark 11, excuse me. If you got a Bible, feel free to turn there with me. We're going to read one passage today. It's page 772, if you like that kind of information. And I need to give you some background as you're turning there. If you don't know, the author Mark loves story sandwiches. He loves these story sandwiches. If you want a fancy seminary word, they're call, it's called intercalation. But if you don't need to know that, you just know it's a story sandwich. He does this multiple times in his gospel. He starts a story, bread, and then he throws in another story, interrupting the first story, meat, and then he finishes the first story, another piece of bread you got a Marken sandwich intercalation. And this is what we have here. So many times we misunderstand the meat part of this story because we're not reading the bread part with it. We, sometimes we mess this up. It also doesn't help that in our Bibles most of the time they give you a heading that Mark never added, and it messes up our reading. Just cross out your headings, y'all. That's not God ordained. That's some dude in England wrote those down. Mark has Marken stories. Each story helps us understand the other. The other background you need to know is the the bread part of this sandwich story sandwich is about fig trees. Looks like Jesus hates figs. That's what it looks like. And you need to know that figs are a symbol and a metaphor for Israel and Israel's religious system, the temple in particular. I got some proof before we read our story. The prophets were talking about figs God says, I will put an end to them, declares the Lord. There are no figs on the tree. A very metaphorical way of talking about this. Hosea does the same thing. I found Israel in its first season like the first fruit on a fig tree. I got two more. Mike, uh, I'm doomed. I've become like one who even after the summer fruit has been gathered, no ripe fig that I might desire to eat. Last one. And this is one of the most famous ones. It repeats all throughout the Old Testament. And it is a sign that when Israel is at its healthiest It says that the people of Judah and Israel lived securely under their own vines and their own fig trees. Probably three or four times. When Israel's going well, everyone has their own vine and their own fig tree. That's my American dream. I need you all to have a vine and a fig tree that you can sit in its shade and eat of its fruit. Figs were a symbol of the religious system going on in Israel. Let's get into this passage It says fig tree and temple. Again, by the way, if your Bible says cleansing the temple, just cross it out, throw it away. Fig tree and temple, starting in verse 12. The next day after leaving Bethany, Jesus' favorite town, Jesus was hungry. Already, this is why we're reading this passage. Jesus was hungry. From far away, he noticed a fig tree in leaf. So he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing except leaves. Since it wasn't the season for figs, I need to give you a Bible reading lesson. Whenever you see something that seems contradictory or weird, dig in. It's there on purpose. So Jesus wants figs, and he sees a fig tree, but it's not the season for figs, and there's no figs on it. This all makes sense, except why is Jesus looking for figs on a fig tree that's not in season? So he said to it, no one will ever eat your fruit again. His disciples heard this. Jesus is mad at this fig tree for not having figs during the season, not season of figs. Then they came to Jerusalem after entering the temple. He threw out all those who were selling and buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange, the chairs of those who sold doves. He didn't allow anyone to carry anything to the temple. He taught them, hasn't it been written, that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a hideout for crooks. The chief priests and the legal experts heard this and tried to find a way to destroy him they regarded him as dangerous because the whole crowd was enthralled at his teaching. We've got to stop there again. I don't have time to go into this during my sermon. But if I were to ask you why Jesus dies, why does Jesus die on the cross? Some of us might say because he was supposed to. It was foretold in the Old Testament. But what is the reason that Jesus is killed? Sometimes we go about our lives and we think it's because he was a nice guy. But Rome doesn't crucify people for being too nice. It's not the reason why they string you up. All my best scholarly research says this action in the temple is the thing that gets Jesus put up there. It says right here, the chief priests, they heard all this. They wanted to find a way to destroy him. He's too popular with the people. They're enthralled with this teaching. He's too dangerous. It's this temple action that gets Jesus up on the cross. 19. When it was evening, Jesus' and his disciples went outside of the city. They were usually camping on the Mount of Olives across the way. Early in the morning, as Jesus and his disciples were walking along, they saw the fig tree withered from the root up. This is how powerful Jesus is. He speaks a curse on this tree. It does, it's withered from the root up, tore up. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look how the fig tree you cursed has dried up. Jesus responded to them. Have faith in God. I assure you that whoever says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and doesn't waver, but believes that that what is said will really happen, it will happen. Therefore, I say to you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you will receive it and it will be given to you or be so for you. And whenever you stand up to pray, if you have something against anyone, forgive So that your Father in heaven may forgive you your wrongdoings. The word of the Lord for the people of God for today. Thanks be to God. As always, when we preach, we preach three points head, heart, hands, something for us to know, something for us to experience, something for us to do. These are the questions I ask about any text that I read. What does God want me to know? What are the facts that I learn? What does God want me to feel? Because if the facts don't become experience or transformation, it's useless, right? just puffs us up. And what do we do with it? How do we actualize this thing so that it makes a difference in our life? Here's the questions I'm asking about Jesus' hunger. What do we learn about Jesus' hunger in the midst of this story? And this is it. What does God want for me? Jesus' hunger helps us have faith in God. Easy. Jesus says right away. Have faith in God. But why does he say that? It's important to know why he says that. He's not just saying, faith is a good thing. There's a reason behind this. Of course, he's Jesus. Rabbi, look how the fig tree you cursed is dried up. Jesus responded to them, have faith in God. I assure you that whoever says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and you do not waver, it will happen. Not a mountain, not The mountains. Which mountain? This mountain. What mountain is that? First, as I always say, faith in the Bible doesn't mean believe God exists. Sometimes in America or in the West or, you know, European heritage, we think faith means believe something exists. It doesn't. Faith in Scripture means something closer to trust. As I always say, the Bible's not trying to convince you that God is real. The Bible assumes God is real. The Bible's trying to convince you that God is good and that God's ways are good. The example I always use is we have this in our language. If I'm at the movies with my girlfriend slash wife, I used to say this when I had a girlfriend. Now I have a wife going on 20 years. And I was like, my, I believe my grandma's going to pick me up. Right? I'm not saying I believe my grandma exists. I trust. She's going to show up and do what she said. With her. This is what Jesus is telling us. Have faith in God. Not believe that God exists. You have to do that to have trust, but it's another level deeper. Again, the Bible's trying to convince you that God is good and that God's ways are good. In this case, the reason Jesus says that is because Jesus is about ready to turn their whole religion on its head. He's about ready to flip the whole thing over. Which mountain? This mountain. Which mountain. This mountain. They're standing at the temple. You know what they called it? The temple mount. Another example of this used in Scripture. Isaiah says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God. Jesus isn't talking about you being able to move mountains. He's talking about you, at least in Matthew and Mark, He's talking about moving the temple mount. Jesus is getting ready. He's getting rid On almost everything they know about their religion, particularly Judaism, his religion, right? He's Jewish. Okay, just want to make sure. No more building, no more temple, no more animal sacrifices. Jews to this day still pray in the direction of where the temple was, and Jews were encouraged throughout Scripture to pray in the direction that the temple was. No more praying towards a building. No more priests to stand and say, you are forgiven. Let me cut your animal, kill it, put some blood some places and forgive you. No more. No more of any of that with what Jesus is about to do. Have faith in God. The question is, do you trust me? I'm getting ready to flip the whole thing over. I mean, he literally says, staring at the temple in Mark 13, Matthew 24, not one stone will be left on top of another when they're looking. They go, look at Jesus, look how beautiful this temple is. And Jesus goes, not one stone will be left on top of another. He's going to literally flip the whole thing over. And all the stuff they know about what it means to be a good Jewish boy in first century Judaism is about ready to be toppled over. And it's easy for us to think that they might be a little bit backwards for needing a temple or needing animal sacrifices or needing priests. But but we just went through a thing for three years ago. I'm not trying not to say anything because I know we're all still a little traumatized by it. And I'm not even worried about where you are on that. Some people thought we did too much. Some people thought we didn't do enough. God bless you. Most of your pastors were like, I don't know how to make everyone happy. I'm not pizza. I can't make everyone happy. I'm so sorry. I got everybody mad from all directions. Uh, But we closed. These places closed. And we lost our minds. And it was really hard. And people's faith wavered because we, too, still oftentimes associate our faith with a building and rituals and practices, and songs, and prayer. Sometimes our faith is wrapped up in religious routines and righteous roofs. Just like them. And Jesus says, do you trust me? Have faith in God. I'm flipping the whole thing over. If I'm not being clear, you don't need me. You don't need me. And you don't need this building. Look, it's a metal shop. I just put lipstick on the pig. It kind of almost looks like a church. <laughs> you don't need it, though. You don't need it. With faith, you can pray anywhere. Anywhere. Not, it doesn't even need to be in any kind of direction. You can pray anywhere. With faith, you can throw the whole thing into the sea. You don't need the stuff. You are the temple of God. Now, you're the place where God lives. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. So because of Jesus' hunger, he teaches us to have faith in God. And faith in this instance means we don't need the stuff. He's going to bring down the temple, get rid of the priest, get rid of the animal sacrifices, and you all now become the temple of God. You can pray anywhere. And where two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name, there, God's presence is in your midst. Yeah. Do you have faith? Do you have that kind of faith? That's what Jesus is asking for here. And that's what his hunger teaches us, wants us to know, wants us to know. What does God want us to feel? Experience in here. He talks about forgiveness. And every time I bring up forgiveness, it brings up a lot of stuff in us, a lot of stuff in us, because we' got people that need to forgive us. We got people that we need to forgive. We got a lot of people we don't want to forgive, but Jesus is pretty deadly serious about forgiveness. So we got to at least talk about it. Jesus's hunger helps us pray with a foundation of forgiveness. What does he say? Therefore, important word, all the stuff he's been saying is leading up to this. I say to you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe it that you will receive it and it'll be so for you. And whenever you stand up to pray, this was was the position of prayer in, in first century Christianity and Judaism. They call it the Orons. So he says, when you stand up to pray, where am I? If you have something against anyone, forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your wrongdoings. Almost every time Jesus talks about forgiveness, he adds A level of conditionality to it. God will forgive you in the measure that you forgive others. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. I do not want to be forgiven as much as I forgive. I want more than I forgive. But Jesus wants you to know that there's some spiritually divine law going on with the amount of forgiveness you have. Jesus wants you to know that you don't need a temple or a building for prayer or forgiveness. But that doesn't mean you don't need to pray or forgive or be forgiven. You're just going to do it differently. You don't need the building. You don't need the animals. You don't need the priest. But you still need the experience. And it's, going to, it's supposed to be more deep, deeper. It's supposed to be a Holy Spirit level of prayer and forgiveness. Jesus empowers us to be deeply prayerful and forgiving. Forgiving is, why? It's wildly important. Jesus is so serious about this that he ties your own prayer and forgivableness to, to and from God to your own forgivingness of others. Forgivingness, I don't think, is a word. But I needed it to be symmetrical, symmetrical to forgivableness. Your own forgivableness is tied to your forgiveness, Forgiveness is just that important. To reiterate it, here's a clip from the 2007 Spider-Man 3. If you don't know, this is Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. And in Spider-Man 3 is all about forgiveness. It's the th- whole theme of the whole movie. If you don't know, back in movie one, Uncle Ben dies. Uncle Ben, their Uncle Ben dies. And he carries that anger and hatred throughout to the point that it turns him literally venomous and black but he's got to talk to aunt may the widow of uncle ben and he's got some news for her that he thinks she's going to delight in but she doesn't here's that clip for us flint marco the man who killed uncle ben he was killed last night oh my what happened spider-man killed him spider-man I don't understand spider-man doesn't kill people what happened I, I uh he, he was <laughs> I thought that did you'd feel He deserved it, didn't he? I don't think it's for us to say whether a person deserves to live or die. But Aunt May, he killed Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben meant the world to us, but he wouldn't want us living one second with revenge in our hearts. It's like a poison. It can... can take you over before you know it, turn us into something ugly. Forgiveness is important because I would listen to Aunt May give me any advice. No revenge in your heart. It's poison. It turns us into something ugly. Jesus wants to know that forgiveness is wildly important. But there's a deeper level to this. Why is Jesus so serious about forgiveness? Because the center of prayer and forgiveness moves from Israel's temple to Jesus' people. See, the temple wasn't just where God lived, and it wasn't just where you prayed, and it wasn't just where you brought animal sacrifices. It was also where you got forgiveness. It's where they have a whole... Feasts, they have a whole ceremony every year called Yom Kippur where they, they have atonement. The whole nation gets forgiven. It was a temple thing to experience forgiveness there. And Jesus says, I'm getting rid of the whole system. So not only do you got to learn how to pray in a different way, in a more powerful way, but also there's no place of forgiveness now other than in you. God's people joined together following Jesus. Obviously, that forgiveness comes from Jesus. We are empowered to be forgiving people by the Holy Spirit of Christ, but this is the locust of forgiveness now. This is the center, not the temple, the people. It's you. You're the place. And if you're the place where God's forgiveness is channeled through, then we got a lot of work to do because a lot of people need forgiveness and they can't just go to a building anymore. God doesn't live in buildings anymore. God lives in you. So Jesus wants to know through his hunger and through his hatred of this one fig tree that forgiveness is meted out in us and through us by his Holy Spirit. This is the place where God's forgiveness breaks out in the world. This is the place where prayer is powerful and effective as the epistle of James says. This is it. This is why Jesus is deadly serious about forgiveness because there's nowhere else for people to go. There's no place to turn to. It's right here. It's right here. Side note again, I always get questions about this. And I will tell you because Jesus told me and you, not me personally, it's in your Bible, Matthew 18. You can have healthy, strong boundaries. You should have healthy, strong boundaries. Matthew 18 very clearly says you talk to people. It's a number of times after which if they don't repent, if they don't change, if they don't, you don't have to be a doormat, Jesus says. You don't have to continue to let these people hurt you and harm you. But then he goes on to a very long parable about the power and importance of forgiveness. So now this sermon is about forgiveness now, but I think ultimately what Jesus wants us to know, if I could just sum up all of that, is that we never give up hope that anyone could be radically changed by God's Holy Spirit. But yes, you are allowed to put strong, healthy boundaries on people that are harmful. But we should be quicker to forgive when we see people trying. Certainly in the measure that we've been forgiven by Christ, we should be willing and able to offer such forgiveness. Because this is it. This is where they find it, right here. Lastly, what does God want us to do with this, with Jesus' hunger and the lessons that he teaches out of his own hunger? Jesus' hunger shows us his desire that we bear the fruit of following him. Jesus is deadly serious about bearing fruit. The next day, after leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And he goes and he finds this tree, and all he finds is leaves. Our leaves? Is leaves. It's our, isn't it? All he finds are leaves. No figs. It's not the season of figs. Why would he want to find figs there? He does anyways. And he cursed it. No one will ever eat of your fruit again. And his disciples heard it. And just a question right off the bat is, do you hear it? What is the deal with this fig tree? Jesus isn't interested in trees that only have flashy, beautiful leaves, but no fruit. And God can show up at any time to check on your fruit. God can come like a thief in the night, not knowing the day or the hour. God will show up maybe this very day to require and ask of your fruit. And if he finds only flashy leaves, not interested, not interested. Paul says something similar. They will look like they are religious, but they deny God's power. He says, avoid people like this. We get it. I think many people are here at this place because we don't like hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of people who claim to follow Christ. But don't bear the fruit of Christ. We hate it. We hate it. We hate it. Guess what? Jesus hates it too. I'm gonna to tell you all that in about 30 seconds again. I'll tell you one of the stories uh, that was really impactful for me. This is a guy named Ted Haggard. It's hard to read this, but he's on the cover of Christianity Today. This all happened a while ago, early 2000s, a million years ago, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. He had a huge church in Colorado, and he was the head of the NAE, which is the National Association of Evangelicals, the largest coalition of evangelicals in the world. He was the president. He was the president of this organization. Here's a 15-second clip of just him talking for a minute, just so you get some flavor. Ted Haggard. We've decided the Bible is the word of God. We don't have to have a general assembly about what we believe. It's written in the Bible. Ted Haggard. Then it came out that he had a huge moral failing. He was sleeping around on his wife and doing meth with sex workers, with prostitutes. A huge fall from grace, they called it. He lost his church. He lost everything. People were angry, right, because he... He, he was on a call every week with the presidents of the United States. That's how powerful he was in this position. Pushing things, very important things like family values. And then it turns out he was not living what he was teaching. And people felt betrayed and upset by the hypocrisy. And then he began a long journey of recovery. Tried to go to some counseling. And then I met him. He looked me. And I was not excited to meet him. I was pretty mad because I don't particularly care for extreme hip- hypocrites who claim to follow Christ and don't bear a lot of the fruit. And I got to tell you, I was taken. This dude is so charismatic. I was like, I do not want to be this guest friend. We were in a conference. There was about 20 of us. We were ribbing each other, joking. I was just trying to t- t- get some digs in. And by the end of it, fast friends. I wanted to be his best friend. I'm not kidding. The charisma was oozing. I wrote this whole thing. You could go back and look on my Facebook. I wrote this whole thing that was like, I didn't want to like him, and I did. And by the end of that conference, he grabbed me by the shoulders, and he looked me square in the eye, and he said, I think once you realize the anointing that God has put on you, and you step into that, and you stop not being confident, God's going to do some incredible stuff through you. I'll never forget it. I believed every word of it. And I thought maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was being too pharisaical. I was just being too judgmental of this guy. Maybe he really had changed. Here's his Wikipedia. A year ago yesterday, he sold his new church building for $2 million because some more allegations were coming up that he was sleeping around on his wife again and using drugs. And now he's going to try to do some house churches. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Man, big, flashy leaves. I thought they were beautiful. I was so excited. I thought God had done something. I thought I was getting convicted about being judgmental. He just got big, flashy leaves. No fruit. God does not want that for us, does not want that for his own people, right? They look religious, but they deny the power of Avoid people like this. Jesus is not interested in trees with big, flashy leaves and no fruit. It's a metaphor if you're not getting it. He's not interested in big, flashy religion or big, flashy church or big, flashy Christians, but don't have any of that stuff that Jesus asked us to do. We don't smell like Jesus. We don't look like Jesus. We're not doing the stuff that Jesus asked us to do. We are bearing no actual fruit. This is Jesus' judgment on the temple. Jesus didn't come to cleanse the temple. He came to pronounce destruction, to curse it from the root up. It had been turned into a den of sinners and a hideout for crooks. The thing that was supposed to help people connect with God had been a thing that distanced them because it was about money and it was about power and it was about hierarchy and it was about abuse and it kept all the people that it was supposed to help out and it became an insider's club that only bolstered people that wanted to be on top. Jesus is not interested in any of that. Not any of it. He's not interested in the hypocrisy We all hate it, and good news is that Jesus hates it too. The bad news is that no one is immune. Even if you hate the hypocrisy of the people that are in the faith around you, your kids are going to have some stuff to say about you. So how do we avoid I'm wrapping up. You've got questions, send them. How do we avoid being the type of religious person that Jesus uh, wants to curse, that wants to wither us at our roots? You have to bear fruit. You have to do the stuff that Jesus said to do. By the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. I'm not saying to do it on your own. I'm just saying you have to look like, you have to follow Jesus close enough that you smell like him. The rabbis used to have a blessing in the old te- and, and, and back, back in the day that when you started following a rabbi, they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, right? You've got to be covered in Jesus' dust. You've got to bear the fruit. You've got to look like him. You've got you to something. You can't just claim the thing and then do whatever you want. Jesus will curse it to the root. Does your tree bear fruit? That's my final question. That's the question we have going in to Holy Week. The same word crowds that called Jesus Hosanna is the same word crowds used again that shout crucify him five days later. Man, we gotta make sure that our life bears the fruit of Christ. Questions, comments, criticisms, concerns? I do have some. Someone said... um, From their uh, expertise, expanding on forgiveness and good boundaries. Forgiveness is releasing the anger you have towards someone else. Often you have to count the cost, the hurt first, to know exactly what you're forgiving. Forgiveness is for your heart, not the person. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Reconciliation comes when you have good boundaries and the other person is safe and willing. I like it. I appreciate it. Thank you your forgivability and your forgiving nature. Are you trying to help me with forgivingness? I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I don't know, though. Forgivability, forgivableness and forgivingness has a good ring to it, even if they're not actual words. Thank you for helping me with this. Here's my summary, and we'll wrap up. When you follow, when Jesus followed his hunger, he emboldens us to have faith in God that moves religious mountains into the sea to be the center of godly prayer and God's forgiveness in the world and to be people who bear fruit of that that looks like we're faithfully following Jesus. And with that, would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for this story. That after your son rides into Jerusalem on a donkey... Starting the revolution that was to come through the cross and the resurrection, we get the story about figs and temples. Would you help us to embody what it is that you want us to have? A deep prayer life, to be deeply forgiving, to not be slaves to buildings and, and, and religious leaders, but also that we wouldn't err in the other direction of being hypocrites that we would actually look like, smell like, off of the world, some fruit that comes from our direct relationship with you. That's what we want. We all want that. We deeply want that. That's why we're here. We want to be close to you, and we want to have the signs, markings, and fruit of being close to you. So would you help us to do that? We cannot do it on our own. We desperately need your help. And we pray that times like this of gathering together in your name, where you promise your presence will be, and in the cup and in the bread, where you promise to meet us at your table, would these be times where we draw close to you so that as we leave out into the world, we would, we would have that fruit, we'd have those signs and markings, and then when people see us, they would ultimately see you, not for our glory, but for yours. Again, help. Help us to experience that radical forgiveness that you want us to embody into the world. Help us to have that depth of prayer that shakes the place. We plead, we cry, we ask because we need you. You're all that we need. And ultimately, we will give you praise and thanks. Table Church, will you help me finish this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer? Saying, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever.